Hello and welcome to today's episode on blockchain and financial inclusion. I'm Effie Pilarinu and I'm with my co-host Arun Krishna Kumar from Rhetoric in London. Hi, this is Arun Krishna Kumar from Rhetoric in London. Today our guest is Sandra Rowe, the head of global business blockchain. And um, Sandra, welcome. Hi. Thank you to you both. So where are you today, Sandra? I know that you've been traveling the whole world since you took on this job this year. So tell us a little bit about um, where you've been, what you have been doing, what's uh, the whole mission that you have undertaken. So uh, to answer your question directly, I am sitting in London right now, um, but I uh, have traveled quite a bit in the last year to, um, as many of you know, I left CME Group uh, in July of last year to focus on blockchain for social impact um, initiatives. And so I wear several different hats in the um, blockchain space. I've got two startups uh, focusing on social impact in different categories. Uh, one is called UN Corp, Unleashing Wealth in Nations, based in the UK, uh, helping farmers, uh, particularly small shareholder farmers in rural uh, parts of Africa. At the moment, we've got two projects on in Mauritius and in Cameroon, um, helping them with uh, registry of their assets and shedding light on uh, pricing of commodities, agriculture. And then the other one is focusing on uh, helping independent artists uh, run small businesses by removing business frictions for them. And that one's called Proof of Art. But the main hat that everyone probably knows me for that I wear is the CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council that does take me um, to quite a few countries. I've been um, to tiny islands. I've been to big countries, small countries. Um, across the globe this year, we focus mainly on the Americas and uh, parts of Europe and Asia. GBBC next year will be focusing um, an extension out to uh, Middle East and Africa in particular. But just to name a few countries of interest, I've been to Mexico, Colombia. Um, we've had the team go out to St. Lucia and other Caribbean islands, as well as Rwanda, South Korea, Croatia. Uh, that's great, Sandra. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the UN Corp initiative that you're part of, because uh, uh, that's something which is uh, which is very close to my heart personally, because uh, there's, where there's a lot of impact we had. Yeah. So I've spent um, the last year with my business partner, who is the MIT entrepreneur in residence, Julius Ekanyemi. He started this project actually a, a long time ago before it became a blockchain uh, initiative uh, around how do you help farmers um, basically leverage and access financial services. And, you know, it falls into the whole topic of financial inclusion. And the approach that we're taking is actually from a grassroots approach, which is if farmers do not have identity, if they cannot leverage their collateral or the assets that they hold today, then what chance do they have of actually going to a financial services firm of any kind, uh, whether it's a bank or a fintech, and getting uh, loans and um, access to insurance and all the other things that we in the developed world probably take for granted. Um, and so what we are doing at a very basic level is starting to register these farmers um, and their assets. So in Senegal, 
he already ran a project back in 2015. Over 500,000 farmers were recorded through a cooperative initiative. And with that, um, it came with almost immediate results. Uh, that registry was not on a blockchain back in 2015, but that registry was known um, it, that existed and the cooperative was able to put that um, as something that they had available for the outside world. Well, a number of buyers from Saudi Arabia found out about it and they placed an order for livestock um, in the form of 1,000 sheep per month um, to that village. That village in Senegal had never seen an order like that ever um, in their history. So very simple concept, but it is around documentation uh, of that asset, then recording it, verifying it, and then making sure that it um, is then able to be used as a form of collateral management. Now, I use a financial term um, that some people might find strange, but when you own things and it's recognized by a network, then you can leverage that to get other things. And that could be credit, that could be um, insurance, it could be other things. But it also helps the other side, aka the financial system, to basically do better risk management as well. If these farmers own assets, which they do, and it's recognized, then it helps to also risk mitigate and risk manage uh, from a, a fintech and a bank's point of view. So, so how does blockchain come into the project or how is it coming in right now? Yeah, so the point of putting things on a blockchain um, is to basically help build the next generation infrastructure. If you have the ability, because very little infrastructure exists, then you can leapfrog, very similarly to the way uh, mobile phones uh, had a leapfrogging effect in the telco space. Our view is, is if we apply blockchain technology as the infrastructure layer to the applications that we're, services we're going to be offering, it doesn't really matter to the farmer that it's on a blockchain solution, but it matters to us as the company and the platform offering it because we can then embed over time smart contracts, um, the ability to embed payment systems, whether that's a tokenized one or not, um, to be seen. But it gives us flexibility to be able to scale other services and applications seamlessly onto um, something that is already recording and securing that data. Absolutely, Sandra, because this is, uh, I mean, for, personally for me, I come from a part of the world where uh, farmers committing suicide is a, is a regular occurrence and uh, rainfall uh, fails. And it's, it's not something that, uh, uh, that has to be, uh, in, in the sense that has to be um, typed into a database or something. The data can be easily uh, pulled in and everything can be automated when the rainfall fails. You know, the, the humidity that the land has and all that has to happen is a smart contract and, and a transfer of funds to the farmer. The problem is it doesn't necessitate the farmer to be aware of the financial product. And I have to tell you, I've, I've spent a lot of time sort of in the derivative space on commodities. And, you know, you hear about trading corn futures or, you know, wheat futures. But when you actually get down to the uh, farmer level, and for me, it's been an eye-opening experience in the last year, sitting there in the plantations with the farmers and understanding how very little options they have um, and the injustice actually of it all, that there is much room for improvement. Um, they don't have choices when it comes to their buyers. Uh, they don't have choices when it comes to, um, you know, obviously being held by the weather and, and being able to cover that with insurance. Um, most farmers that we speak 
to in developing nations have very few options. And this is where I feel like it's not blockchain solving every problem, but it is there are places and spots where um, shedding light, transparency, um, and then also automating things and providing um, data around that can actually help not only the bottom line, putting more money into the pockets of the farmers, but also policymaking around um, agriculture. And having spoken to many governments, um, particularly in African nations, I will tell you, it's astounding to me, the lack of data and basic information that you would think um, policymakers would need to have to make good decisions. Sandra, in terms of um, uh, the work that you do with uh, um, the council, tell us uh, there uh, in which direction you're, you're planning uh, to, to bring in impact into to that space. I know that the council is more focused right now in uh, post-trade and post-settlement issues in, in the blockchain space, correct? Well, that's the PTDL group. So let me just, if it's okay, uh, to do a quick mm-hmm. summary. So the GBC was uh, an idea that was conceived, as most ideas in the blockchain space, by a group of people um, back at uh, Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island in the Blockchain Summit of 2016, because people were concerned about the fact that blockchain discussions were proliferating, but that government and very senior um, executives at big companies, et cetera, would find it a daunting task trying to get their heads around blockchain. So GBVC's mission as a Swiss nonprofit, which was launched at Davos in 2017, is really around education, partnership, and advocacy for government regulators and uh, executives at some of the biggest companies out there and marrying that with the startups um, that are doing really innovative things in, in various categories. So we look at beyond financial services, this cuts across supply chain, government, um, healthcare, energy. Uh, we're finding that the conversations from even last year are changing. We're being asked about media advertising, identity, um, you name it, it, it's coming into fruition. Even fashion houses, by the way, who are trying to combat uh, counterfeiting and fraud. So we're having some very interesting conversations. What we're trying to do right now is baseline education to governments and also um, neutral views around the tech to make sure that they get a bird's eye view of what is out there and it's up to an enterprise or it's up to a government to decide what direction they want to go with that. Uh, we try not to dictate, you know, this blockchain or that company is the best. And just so you know, for the PTDL group, with this, which is the post-trade distributed ledger group you were mentioning, we've now brought that under our umbrella, one of the initiatives under a number of initiatives that we have. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the partnership and how does that align with the strategy that GBBC has for its future? So the post-trade distributed ledger group, which I will say I was one of the founding members when um, when I was at CME, is basically made up of incumbent, um, uh, the largest custodians, uh, banks on the post-trade side, uh, exchanges and clearinghouses, you can imagine, CSDs. And basically it came into fruition back in November of 2015 when the blockchain conversations really started percolating in financial services and for basically the industry to get together to try to figure out and educate themselves and discuss with themselves and the uh, regulators on how 
this would impact and disrupt um, the space. I think people saw it coming, and the question was, what exactly would happen? Um, and and the forum has continued. Um, it needed structural support from more of an organization, which is why GBVC has stepped in to basically formalize and um, you know professionalize the organization and help its members make sure that the communication information flow um, keeps going. It's a fairly lightweight group. It's evolved a little bit in the sense that we now allow buy-side asset managers uh, to be members. And um, Janice Henderson, for example, is on the organizing committee alongside HSBC, State Street, uh, CLS Bank, um, and a few other firms, uh, London Stock Exchange Group. And then, um, you know, that uh, organizing committee then drives sort of how we um, have our monthly calls. The meetings are physically in London, but because the group is global, uh, it's just a dial-in once a month. And it really is a reg-focused um, group. They really look at what is happening around the world and what regulatory um, advances have happened and or changes, and also white papers and um, pilots that are going on. And Sandra, from the countries that you mentioned already, um, some uh, uh, you mentioned Colombia, you mentioned Mexico uh, from the emerging markets. Can you give us a little bit of color as to whether they are uh, more hungry um, and have more appetite than um, the developed world? Any specifics in terms of the areas? Is it energy? Is it identity? What are you seeing? I think um, we're seeing a mosaic. Uh, as, as many things, whenever there's a new tech or I think emerging tech, I think you see lots of different um, levels of understanding and lots of different levels of focus. Uh, we're seeing that across the board. But just to give you a couple more specific um, you know, uh, areas to look at. So when it comes to e-government, for, so meaning ways for government to be more efficient in delivery of services to their citizens and to better impact citizens' lives. Um, I think there's an incredible amount of interest, um, particularly at the city level, across the world. And we have helped link some of the most diverse cities out there with conversations to be able to have sort of their quote-unquote blockchain person or group um, talk to their other blockchain groups and make sure that there's a cross-fertilization of best practices. And that's one of the roles that we play is kind of building bridges is that we're finding uh, that cities in particular, you know, we've all heard the term smart cities, but what does that really mean? Um, I think countries like, or cities like Dubai, um, LA, New York, um, there are even some in South America that haven't really come into fruition yet or been announced, but they're working on things. Um, but also, you know, Hong Kong and um, Singapore are leading the pact. But there are others that are coming and, and, and kind of advancing um, the topic as well. And what we're trying to do is help knit that conversation across the landscape. Um, but it is very much a mosaic, I would say. So I think the e-government aspect is, uh, is pretty interesting as well, Sandra, because one of the projects that's happening in um, the state of Andhra Pradesh in India, for example, they, they're literally bringing up a new, they're building a new uh, capital city called Amravati. And, uh, uh, and the land acquisition for that particular project is completely on blockchain. Um, there's quite a lot of advanced features they're using to kind of bring that 
uh, to fruition. But um, uh, the thing is, it's it's it's. Uh, I think lots of other countries like Dubai are also kind of uh, looking into that uh, the aspect of uh, usage of blockchain. I guess so. That's a, that's an interesting space. Um, one of the questions I I personally had. Um, was uh, around your um, your LinkedIn uh, post a couple of days back, where you basically said, "Let's focus on human-centric tech and help build a better society and serve the most vulnerable and excluded." So, what do you mean by the human-centric aspect of it? Because it's it's it kind of resonates with what I think. I just want to make, understand. Um, I think there's a lot of cool tech out there, and I'm certainly not. Um, disparaging any of the tech that is um, just advancing cool things. Um, But what I would like to always look at is what are real world problems and where are the pockets where tech can help alleviate human suffering, um, human access to things that should be a right um, that they're not, they don't have access to, which for me in particular, just because of my background, I really do focus on financial services and financial access because um, resources are important to everyone's life. And some people have the ability to access more resources than others, right? So um, my view on that is I've decided to focus on trying to take real world problems, breaking them down into pieces and working with others in particular. I think the collaboration piece is the most important that comes out of all of this. When I say human centric, I really mean how do we all work together who are trying to achieve these common good goals and make sure that it's not just individual siloed projects, which unfortunately I see a lot of these days. How do we actually knit that together to actually create a mesh network of uh, scale? And I think that's the only way we're going to be able to tackle some of the biggest um, issues out there as to why people don't have identity, or why they don't have records of what they own, or you know their ability to access not just banking, but just access how to safeguard money. Uh, maybe it is on their phone and has nothing to do with a bank. But the point being is, you know, being able to move money across countries, small amounts, micropayments. These are all different problems and we need to tackle them and they're huge. Um, so for me, it's really around how do we get to that practical level? Um, the human condition at the bottom 1 billion or 2 billion, unless people are okay with it, I certainly am not. Um, it's a matter of urgency. Correct, Sandra. And um, I feel that there's a little bit of derailing going on in this tech wave where we are experimenting a lot. A lot of money is being invested, human resources, people working in improving tech, in piloting, in use cases and so on. But unfortunately, most of it is is not going where it should, which is to make a, a financial system, in the case uh, that that we understand better, that's more fair, and we get more cases of uh, you know tokenizing gold, tokenizing diamonds, tokenizing, and and unlocking value uh, that is is really for institution or or already wealthy people instead of solving the big problems that we haven't solved not because we don't lack we don't have resources but because we can't do it because of lack of consensus really that that's uh, I think we all in our own way have to speak up for that and, and push in that uh, direction. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think um, the bright spot 
is I think the messaging around blockchain for social impact or blockchain for good does resonate with um, various pockets of society. I don't think enough pockets, but um, keep going. And I think there is a sentiment and cultural change of attitude about, um, you know, making a conscious effort to build businesses around that. And I think this is where I actually do want to make a distinction. People act like, you know, when you talk about blockchain for social impact, this only has to do with NGOs or charities or giving money away. Mm -hmm. Actually, my view is it is actually absolutely about bottom line, opportunity, economics, and actually creating a fair world in turn because you have created those economic opportunities. And there is money to be made. I don't think there's anything wrong with anyone who wants to make money. But here's the point is, can you make money and also help society? My view is absolutely yes. Um, you don't need to have it be a zero-sum game. And we need a better consciousness around building businesses that can still make money and create opportunities for others, but also help solve some of the world's, um, you know, most critical problems. And I think this is where financial services companies, entrepreneurs, anyone interested in the finance side can actually really make an impact. Great, Sandra. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your insights and your experiences with us. Um, can we ask you a couple of more personal questions? Effie, you got me a little scared, but okay. So, so tell us uh, a bit uh, about uh, what book you're reading these days that's exciting. Wow, okay. Well, it's pretty mundane stuff. I know this sounds, but I'm actually reading a book called API Management. Um, I read a lot of technical books in my spare time, constantly catching up. The last one I read was on mobile security, because um, I'm also really focused on security right now. Um, I'm not a, a, you know, a tech expert, but I do in my spare time try to keep up with um, just bigger picture um, best practices around uh, how we look at stuff um, from a technical architecture standpoint. You, you spoke a lot about um, islands when you were talking about uh, your efforts with GBBC. So what's your favorite island to holiday? Mm, I, you know, I'm going to be careful there because I don't government official pointing out that I've now labeled their island as favorite and not another one favorite. How about this? I will say to you that I'm excited about islands because I'll give you an example. Um, the Caribbean. The Caribbean gets cut off, and I'm talking about the central banks, get cut off from the uh, global capital markets um, and they're bound to the, you know, and they're, they're basically held hostage because of the correspondent banking system. If they get cut off, what are they meant to do? Um, there's a reason why the Barbados um, digital dollar is happening and that they're linking up amongst themselves to be able to create an alternative. Um, these things are not obvious unless you're actually the one who's left out, but I'm not talking about individuals here. I'm talking about entire little nation states who are left out of the bigger global financial markets. Um, and I think this resonates with the kind of underdog theory, right? Which, you know, I'm always a fan of the underdog, which is um, if the big system doesn't include you and actually actively cuts you out, then why not? You do, you should create an alternative. And if you can link up with others that can also help each other, then that's the rise of the alternative.
Great. Okay. One last question, if that's okay. Um, when did the inclusion bug bite you? Have you always wanted to be focused on inclusion? So this is actually a personal story then um, to answer that question properly. I am a former banker, as most of you know. I actually grew up on the trading floors of London uh, at Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley. And frankly, when I first started, um, I was probably like any other banker thinking that um, the financial services system was good and fine and worked and was great for society. But actually, um, with the advent of the financial system, and you know, me personally, having saved all my money in my 20s and putting it into a pension and doing all that good stuff and then watching it completely wash out, basically, and watching um, institutions that we thought were supposed to be there for us and actually safeguard, um, you know, really be called into question. For me, it's not just about the fact that I went through five rounds of layoffs and watched people, you know, lose everything overnight. It was more about, you know, what have we construct in the world and does that need reimagining? And so when I, a number of years later, you know, finally understood the implications of the Bitcoin white paper, this is back in 2012, I actually tweeted about this the other day. Um, you know, it occurred to me that we need to have a rethink around what society is doing around financial services, who it serves, who it excludes. And I have to be very frank, I didn't really think about the implications of who we're excluding by the current financial system that we've built um, until the crisis really hit. And, and for me, since then, I think I've learned to question um, in general. And uh, does that make sense? Because some things are good. Don't get me wrong. This is not about anarchy. Anarchy is not good in my book. We want to keep certain systems that are good in place. It's just a question around are all the systems that we take and use um, really good for everyone? And it's not, uh, at least I don't think so. And I think blockchain and, and um, the advent of blockchain has helped shed light and push a little bit on the, actually maybe a lot, on the status quo. I agree with you, Sandra, when I hear people questioning whether blockchain has succeeded and what are the use cases, my response is it has already succeeded because it's pushed all of us to rethink and think, still think of the design of, of the existing system. And, and it's done its job. It doesn't matter if in five years or whenever it's going to be this blockchain or something else. It's done its job. It's moved us um, and forced us and poked us to, to rethink all these things. Absolutely. And I think it does have the opportunity. It's already done that. And I think it has the opportunity to then say, hey, what about the other 2 billion people out there that don't have access to proper um, financial services? And I don't even mean like getting bank accounts for these people. It's about how else can we reimagine by using the phone and blockchain solutions and crypto to actually deliver something that they can use. Uh, we're not there yet, but I think there are a lot of bright people out in the world trying to solve for that. On that really good note, uh, let's close the podcast for today. Uh, thank you so much, Sandra, for making time. Um, it was lovely to hear your views and uh, thanks for uh, being part of this. Erin and Effie, thank you so much for the opportunity. And I'm so glad that you guys have this podcast. Amazing. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you.